Hello, hello, and welcome to the Rotman Podcast, powered by the Entertainment and Media Association. We're your hosts, Ben Castle and Aaron Tutsumoto. We are very honored to welcome Professor Heskey Bar Isaac and Professor Walid Hijazi, Rotman Faculty in Economics. Professor Bar Isaac is the Professor of Integrative Thinking and Economic Analysis and Policy and Area Coordinator for the Economic Analysis and Policy Area. Professor Bar Isaac was also my professor for managerial economics last year. Professor Hijazi is the Associate Professor of Economic Analysis and Policy and Academic Director at the Rotman School of Management. Professor Hijazi was also my professor for Economic Environment of Business last year. Unofficially, they qualify as Rotman's two most loquacious professors with differently spirited and interesting classes. Thanks to you both for being on the Rotman podcast. Thank you so much for, for having us. I'm excited for the conversation. It's always a pleasure to talk to students and I'm looking forward to seeing where this takes us. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really honored to be here. Thanks so much for including me in this. And I never had the opportunity to spend as much time as I would have liked to in person with many of our classmates. So this will be a wonderful opportunity for uh, the students to get to know both Husky and I better. Thank you. Let's go ahead and get started for uh, the Rotman class of 2021. Can you speak to how your core class fit into their economics education? Which classes are you teaching this year? And I'll direct that one first to uh, Professor Jazi. So I teach economic environment and business in the first year. And this course allows students to better understand issues around the macroeconomy, how it's measured and how monetary and fiscal policy are used to influence the economy. This part is really exciting the economists and those who work in policy. But what's really critical about taking this course in macroeconomics is that it draws clear links between financial markets, business activity, and the real economy. So it allows people, MBA students and future managers and companies to really understand the relationships between their business and movements in the macroeconomy. But really importantly, Ben, it really allows managers to understand opportunities that arise when the economy moves, but also how to mitigate challenges in the event of an adverse movement in the economy. And uh, Professor Barizic? Sure. There's part of me that says, having taken the class, you should be in a better position to answer this question than, than, than nice. me. <laughs> this year, I'm, uh, I'm teaching managerial economics to the AM and PM programs. I actually had my first class this morning. And I, th I think to the, to the students coming in, they think of it as kind of classical microeconomics, the demand supply frameworks. If, if you had images of me, you'd be seeing me doing Kung Fu now with my, with my hands, demand and supply moving around. I think really what I try and impress is that this is an exemplar of the modeling approach that is sort of central to the MBA. The, the fact that very simple models, which are kind of cartoon caricatures of real life, of how people make decisions, have a lot of power to inform how we think about our own decisions and how we think about others' decisions. Partly the class is a, an exemplar and partly it's this very powerful, specific modeling approach, that of, uh, you know, classical economics, which I think is, is, is central for, for many courses through the MBA. Um, in addition to that course, this year, I'm also going to be teaching a first-year core elective on game theory and strategic reasoning. Yeah, we'll go more into that in a minute. Aaron, did you have any questions? 
Yeah, so my first question goes to both of you as well. I guess we'll start with Husky. How would you describe your teaching style and how might you get an A in your class? All right, sure. So I'm a Brit with a proper classical education. I, I even did Latin and Greek and, and so classical in that sense too. Uh, I'm a little bit old school, so my tendency is a little bit old school, standing in front of the class and, uh, and sharing my wisdom you know, on equations and, and everything. Now, I'm sufficiently self-aware that I know that this is my tendency. And so I try and do things to, to fight it by uh, making sure that I provide some opportunities for discussion, trying to get engagement through, uh, you know, last year it was clickers. This year I'm using a lot of poll everywhere. I think it's a technology that, that, that some of us have seen. This morning I ran a, a, a market simulation exercise in the, in the classroom, uh, which was a lot of fun. And I also try and engage by trying to return always to the kind of big themes of the class and trying to explain how, how what we do fits into them. You asked me about how to get an A in the class as well. You get an A in my class the same way you do in every class. You make sure you're on top of the material. You do that early rather than late. If you're uh, struggling, don't bottle it in and don't find out at the last minute. Uh, talk to others. Talk to me. Talk to the scholars. They're happy and excited to work. I'm happy and excited for people to reach out. So that's how you get an A. But if an A is the most that you take from the class and the most that you're looking for from the class, then, then all of us have missed a big opportunity. Hey, we wouldn't have had you on today if that's all we got from the class. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. That was a great answer. And now I'll direct the same question to Walid. How might you describe your teaching style and how would you get an A in your course? Yeah, so I'll start with the second part first, and sort of that really leads into the first part. But I know later we'll talk a bit more about how do I define success in the class. And right now we're thinking about an A, but I tell students all the time to think about a portfolio of activities, thinking about getting good grades, building relationships, and getting that job that you want. But right now we're focused on getting an A. And how do you get an A in my class? I think the number one thing that you have to do is you have to come to class, you have to be well rested, and you have to be engaged. I would impress upon students that there's no two hour time period in your time at Rotman that would have a higher ROI in terms of learning and getting good grades than coming to class and being fully engaged and being on top of the material. I don't buy this idea that I work well under pressure. I wait until the last minute. So to echo what Heskey said, you get an A by being on top of the material and working. And I always say to students that, that argue I work well under pressure. My response is, sure, you may do well, but you would do better if you came to class, were fully engaged, and didn't wait until the last minute to learn the material. Now, if I expect students to come to my class and be fully engaged, I have to give back as well. And I would like to think I'm one of Rotman's more engaging professors. And I've been told that uh, by, by lots of students. I was called loquacious by the two of you. Um, and, and, you know, as you know, the MBA program is it's packed. There's just so much to do. And students often wish they had more time to study. So as a professor, I know how challenged the students are. I know that my teaching philosophy is you want, I want you in the class and I want you fully engaged. So I have to be really, really engaging. So two things or three things I do 
I do a lot of cold calling where I insist that people are, I, I see Aaron, you're, you're smiling because I called on you several times. But the, the idea is I do a lot of storytelling. And the reason is I think about the real world, not just in terms of the macro economy, but in terms of individual experiences. I give a lot of stories. And when I talk to students years later, the one thing they always remember are the stories. And some stories are so personal, I wish I didn't tell them. But the idea is you have to have something that's really compelling so it impacts the students so they take away those key messages. So that's ultimately very engaging, getting students to think uh, about real world issues, a lot of storytelling, but making the environment conducive so people wanna come to class. And the last thing I will say is, I was not only called loquacious and sort of personal, but also that attendance in my class tends to be among the higher, uh, on the higher end among, you know, and the idea that classes are recorded. I'm, I'm really um, sort of, it's a compliment to me that we get so many students in the classroom. And I think it's because of that engaging style. Could I, could I just chip in for a second on, on this thing about uh, the importance of stories? A book that I read several years ago that had a, a deep impact on, on the way I teach and on the recognition that what people remember is stories more than they remember truth necessarily. There's a great book by um, two brothers, Chip and Dan Heath. One is a, a professor at Stanford GSB called Made to Stick that kind of asks what, what makes people remember things? What are the things that, that, that stick? And narratives and story are, are key to that. So I fully endorse Walid's importance of stories. And, you know, I, I know Ben has heard me talk about uh, diapers in Denver airport or whatever it is to think about price discrimination. Uh, years later, those are things that, 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 that I fully endorse uh, Walid's approach on this. Yeah, I can, I can both attest to uh, being very skilled narrative storytellers and, and two of the most engaging professors uh, in the program. So Yeah, and I also wanted to jump in quickly and mention the storytelling and say how that really helps bridge the gap between student and professor in terms of roles in the classroom. And so because of that, I, I find that this can be a very informal and casual chat. So I, I do apologize for calling you both by your first names. So I hope you'll indulge me. But the use of storytelling in your courses really helped me to stay engaged throughout. And I think it was a really effective way for you to kind of be relatable to me as a student. So I wanted to thank you for that. Yeah. And, uh, and if I would add, one of the things that I miss about the in-person is the fact that, you know, I go for lunch and coffee with students on a regular basis. Obviously, that's not there anymore. But having that personal relationship with the faculty members, I think, really helps a lot of the themes that we're trying to communicate resonate more. But I think also the faculty learn a lot more about the student perspective, and that helps us be better teachers. Yeah, so Absolutely I guess, agree. you know, building on that uh, subject, I, I'd be curious to see, you know, what attracted you both to the world of academia in the first place and, you know, how you ended up at Rotman. Um, and since we're on a first name basis now, I'll start with uh, Heskey. <laughs> sure. So this is this is an answer that's going to embarrass me a little bit. Uh, it was sure, sheer blind luck. So or, or uh, if I wanted to sound fancy, I'd call it serendipity. And my mum would happily tell you that the best quality to have in life is to be lucky and, and that I've had that in spades. So when I, when I finished my undergraduate in the UK, um, I'm not gonna say when, but it was some years ago, uh, 
you know, I, I did the standard things that people do at the end of undergrad in the place that I was, which was applied to the investment banks and management consultants and all of the blue chip desirable firms that, that some of you are looking at now as well. Uh, of course, some of the ones in my time have since uh, disappeared. And I didn't get any of the jobs that I wanted. I didn't get any job offers at all. So I thought, okay, what's going to make me more marketable? You know, my undergrad was in maths. I said, I'll do economics. That sounds a little more like business. And that might make me more attractive to employers. And uh, I found I loved it. I found I loved thinking about things that were relevant for issues and policies in the news. I loved engaging with stuff that was going on then. I also found that I was good at it, which probably helped me to, to love it. And uh, the place that I did my master's, the LSE, said, you know what, you're pretty good. Do you want to stay in for a PhD? And that sounded pretty good as well, because the PhD program let you spend a year abroad. And I wanted to spend a year abroad at one of the places where they had an exchange. So I went and did that. And then when I finished the PhD, you know, I got a job offer from NYU. And, you know, I was a, a Jewish kid from North London in their 20s being offered uh, an apartment and a job in New York City. So I, I went and did that. And, uh, you know, th there I am. Uh, so so that's what that's what took me to to the world of academia. <laughs> and how about to Rotman, you know, more specifically? Sure. Um, you know, so I think like many people in New York, I had my first kid and thought um, maybe New York's not the place to be and was starting to, to look around. And Rotman at the time was one of, of several places that, you know, when, when you get to that point, it then becomes a family decision. You're not just thinking about your career, you're thinking about your, your whole life, where you want to raise a family, where all of the family is going to be happy. And so, you know, partly I'll say I did what my wife told me. But beyond that, you know, what my wife told me is you better be happy wherever we're going because we're going to be there. So what is it about Rotman that, that made me happy? Um, it was an exciting place to be, uh, and, and I think it still really is an exciting place to be. It was a place that was clearly on the rise in terms of its research, that had like a really young faculty. It was a place that had grown from um, 40 or so faculty 15, 20 years ago to over 100 now. And so that meant that the faculty was also very young compared to many places, and young people this is my old man uh, patronizing thing. Young people tend to be excited and exciting and fun to be around. I think that's part of the appeal of academia for us is, you know, we're constantly rejuvenated and excited to be around people who are excited about their opportunities, excited about life. And that, that buzz ran through all of Rotman then. And, and I think it's still runs through through Rotman now. Um, and it's also nice to be in one of the best cities and countries in the world who has like values and, and cultures that, that, that we can subscribe to. And uh, Waleed, do you have anything to add on that? Yeah, and before I, I give you my experience, I'll just add that uh, the faculty were incredibly excited when Husky decided to join Rotman and our ranking shot up the day he arrived. So thank you for that, Husky. <laughs> right? But uh, you know, you're absolutely right. And the first thing I ask the students every year is nothing's perfect, but what country would you like to live in other than Canada? And we're all lucky to be in Canada. And I think Husky, you made exactly the right decision to leave New York and come to Toronto. And we've all benefited from that. I did my undergrad at the University of Western Ontario. And in first year, um, you know, it's a hard program, but I got in at Western, it's in the second year when you specialize. 
And I got I was lucky enough to get acceptance into Ivy's prestigious uh, BB, a business program, HBA program. And I decided not to pursue the HBA at Ivy, uh, and this is back in the 80s. And everybody thought that, are you sure you're doing the right thing? And rather than pursue uh, a degree on the business side, I actually went into the honors economics program. Now, most people listening to this podcast wouldn't know what Western was in the 1980s, but it was one of the top 10 economics departments in the world at that time. And the honors program in second year started with 120 people and they cut it in half every year. So only 60 made it to third year. So 120 started in second year, 60 made it to third year and only 30 graduated. So it was an incredibly demanding program and it was really all graduate level stuff. But during that time, we were really pushed to think really, really hard about important economic issues by some of the world's leading economists. And one of the faculty that really impacted me, there's actually two, one of whom's at Rotman, is Ig Horseman, at the time was at Western, but Glenn McDonald, who's now in Washington uh, at the Olin School. But these were you know, leading figures in the academic community, and they really pushed us to think really, really deep and hard about important economic issues. And we just decided in our fourth year that that was our calling, that we really wanted to be in an environment that had us think for a long, long time and very, very deeply about important economic issues. And that's why in our fourth year, we were pushed towards applying. So of the 30 students in honors economics, there was three or four of us that were pushed and encouraged to apply to grad school. Now, I'm not sure I knew at that time what I was getting into, but that's the year that I applied for a PhD program and everything went incredibly well and I pursued a career in academia. And how I ended up at Rotman, this is an interesting story as well. There's an unwritten rule in academia that you don't hire your own graduate students. So I did my PhD at the University of Toronto in the economics department, and I spent the first few years of my career in the economics department, which is quite rare because they, you know, they would like you to leave the school and go somewhere else to create your name before you're kind of validated. So I just, this is too much information, but I went on the market five years later after graduating and did really well. And so the Rotman school said, so you validated your value by getting all of these job offers. So Rotman hired me despite the fact that I had not left Toronto. So I was really, really lucky to have the opportunity to stay in Toronto, great city and a great country at an amazing school. And we're lucky that you did. Thank you for that, Husky. I'll pay you later. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you both for your answers. That was really interesting. And I really enjoyed listening to your, your journeys. So I guess for the listeners at home, I wanted to point out that the reason why our audio sounds different is because we're all recording remotely due to the coronavirus. And it's really impacted all of us. And so I wanted to get your perspective, both of you, on how the coronavirus has affected your course content and maybe what topics could we expect that might be related to the coronavirus. So I guess, Wally, we'll start with you. Yeah, so I teach the macroeconomics course, and I won't teach that again until January 2022. And it's got, it has a lot of new material around COVID. But there's two things I'd like to say about how it's affected the content. Right now, I'm teaching an international business course um, in the executive MBA. 
and all of the discussion is around global supply chains, all of the issues around shortages in PPE, and whether or not the impact of this, this, you know, this real global crisis, this pandemic and what it's had, what is the way to fix this in the future? So is the answer to roll back global supply chain to be much more um, less dependent on the global economy? Um, so these are the questions that we're having. And I will say um, there's a lot of uncomfortable discussion in the class around being dependent on countries like China, other countries, even the United States. So the idea is that, you know, uh, our premier, Premier Ford even talked about, you know, how, when Trump tried to get 3M to prevent uh, their exports to Canada. So countries around the world have become protectionist around PPE at a time that we really need the global economy to work. So we're thinking through those issues and rather than go more deeply into that, the other point I would like to add is that Professor Bloom, who also taught you and I, we created a new course that will be offered in January. And I think it's really, really cool. It's called the Global Classroom. And the title of the course is the global economy in the world of trade wars and the pandemic. So we're really focused on the pandemic, but the world is changing as a result of the trade war as well. So both of these things are going on. But what's really unique about this course, this is a substitute, a substitute for the study tour. Last year, Professor Bernardo and I were supposed to take the students to Cambodia and China. That obviously got canceled. So we don't have travel this year, but this international, this global classroom, what's so cool about it is we're aiming for 30 Rotman students and 30 students from our partner schools around the world. And so the idea will be we'll have students in the classroom virtually and every single day there'll be a virtual breakout where students from Rotman will interact with students from somewhere around the world. That's a substitute for the, the study tour, but it's really going to get us to think about three important things. One is understand cross-cultural issues, very important. Number two, to think about these really important issues around the pandemic and the trade war and how they interact with what, how we understand the global economy. But thirdly, we have people coming in from one of the leading consulting firms to talk about how to interact in a virtual environment. We don't know how long this world is gonna last, but it seems that for the next one or two years, we have to engage in a virtual world. So for all the MBA students, you know, this, as you leave the Rotman program and other programs and go into the, into the real world, there will be more of this virtual. So how do you understand how to communicate most effectively? And for those people that think it's the same as the real, the in-person world, you're completely wrong. The virtual world is very different. So we're gonna develop these three components, these three pillars in our class, cross-cultural understanding, understanding the pandemic and the trade war, um, and all the theory and the practice for business. But thirdly, we're gonna have another component, how to more effectively communicate in a virtual world. So COVID has really impacted the classes I'm teaching, and it's also, helped us design a new course that we will offer in January of 2021.
Well, that sounds really exciting um, that, you know, you keep on innovating different classes here at Rotman and adjusting to the times. Um, would you be able to add a little bit on what you think uh, the greatest strengths of the Rotman program overall are for prospective students? And um, do you have any specific recommendations for students who are considering applying for an MBA uh, here at Rotman? And I'll, I'll direct that to Walid again. Okay. So I believe the most important factor in deciding on what school to go to or how much you learn, in my opinion, and Husky can weigh in on this as well, I believe it's the faculty. And one of the most important parts about choosing Rotman as a school is, as Husky said, it's not only a large faculty, but it's a young faculty. And not to take away from other schools, but some schools that you go to that have a smaller faculty, you might have one faculty member teaching three or four topics. When you come to Rotman, we have such a large faculty that's highly published and is able to able to teach leading edge stuff. So the number one benefit of coming to Rotman, in my opinion, is highly reputable faculty that are able to teach leading edge theories. It's very important. But secondly, and equally important, I believe, are the students. From a faculty perspective, teaching students that are really motivated and really want to learn, I mean, that's that's sort of the best part about teaching is that when students like the two of you reach out to do something like this, it shows how engaged you are. This is sort of a big reward for us, but you also learn a lot from your classmates. So you work in teams, you work in group work, you socialize together. So I would argue that the two points that you really want to think about the most important points about choosing a school and why Rotman would be an important school to choose is you got, highly specialized faculty that are able to deliver really deep insights in the areas that matter. There's a really strong pool of students that you want to interact with, you want to build networks with, so you learn from both. And I think that's sort of the big benefit of choosing a school like Rotman. If, if I could add to that, I mean, I, I think the two things really go hand in hand. I think what the best students really want to learn and, and the best professors really want to be challenged by their students and are really passionate about what they're doing and, are, and uh, have, have, have stories that they want to tell. I mean, I think, you know, when you listen to Walid, when you listen to some of my other colleagues, you, you, you feel that passion. And you, you have to be excited about what you're doing to be an academic. You know, these are people who've given up 10 years of their life to fly to another country, to live in another culture, so that they can sit in the basement of a library to obsess over something that only three people in the world care about for, for six or seven years. Now, either you're a psycho or you really love what you do. Um, you know, our, our uh, recruitment process weeds out the psychos. So what we have is people who, <laughs> who really love what they do and are excited about the opportunity to, to share that and communicate that to others. And I think that that's the value of committed researchers is they care deeply about what they do. They're bringing you to the frontier of, of knowledge. They, you know, they're excited about it because they're generating it and they want to tell you about it. And the best students are attracted to that approach and, and, and so these, these two things, I think, go, go hand in hand. And they're, they're, they're actually the, the, the two, two aspects that I would highlight as well, the, the quality of the faculty and the quality of the students. Those are both great answers. Thank you very much. And next, now that we're on the topic of passion and being passionate about what you do, I am curious if either of you have a favorite economist, either living or dead, and can you explain why? 
so many choices. So many choices here. You only get one. <laughs> uh, I'm going to give you a whole bunch. So, so I, 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 I can't get past Adam Smith, who's just like way more interesting than, than many people think. I mean, I think you, people, you know, his less well-known book is called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And there's a great kind of 21st century translation of that book by, by Russ Roberts called How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. If you think you know Adam Smith, read How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life, and he will. Uh, the former provost of, of of the University of Toronto, Cheryl Misak, in the in the philosophy department, has just published a biography of Frank Ramsey. Super interesting uh, Cambridge economist, passed away at the age of 26. Wrote two field-defining papers in economics by that age, and Cheryl Misak would argue that he's primarily a philosopher more than an economist. Uh, can't go past John John Maynard Keynes. I've just taken up one of his old jobs. So he was the editor of the Economic Journal. I've just started up in, in that job. And so I have an, an even greater appreciation of John Maynard Keynes than, than I had before I started this. Um, but I wanted to leave you with someone that you probably haven't heard of, who's a guy called uh, Fred Kahn. I, I have, do you know him, Walid? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. So he's this larger than life economics professor who had the successful academic career and then brought it to policy. Uh, he was the guy who was sort of central to the deregulation of the American airline industry that brought about this phenomenon of low-cost carriers and, and real competition. He was a, he was a character. He, he uh, was a huge Gilbert and Sullivan fan, uh, publicly acknowledged. Uh, he was a passionate believer in marginal costs, and he was a passionate believer in the academic approach in a way that changed the world. Now, you can question his legacy, and Thatcher and Reagan are, are part of that legacy, but what you can't question is his passion for taking academic concepts and believing that they're relevant and uh, should affect the way that we organize society. And how about you, Walid? Do you have any other economists that you'd like to add? I'm going to give three names. I'll just focus on the third. My number one choice is Husky Bar Isaac. He's <laughs> my hero, okay? But uh, the, the name I had down for my favorite economist, and like Husky, it's hard to choose, but I, I thought about my teaching, and I thought about the first thing I tell the students in the MBA course after telling them the importance of networking is I always say in the absence of externalities, the free market economy gives rise to the optimal allocation of resources. And if you had a benevolent dictator, then he or she, if they knew everything, they would have sort of the same outcome, the importance of free markets. And, you know, Adam Smith, you know, articulated that sort of the foundation of modern economics. And you think about, I tell the students this all the time, is you think about the Soviet Union and the former communist countries, and they've all collapsed and moved towards sort of a free market economy, you know, because of these principles that Adam Smith developed. But because Heskey chose Adam Smith, the person I will, I will go with is, is David Ricardo. And why do I say that? And it's a lecture I'm giving tomorrow to the executive MBAs. My first slide is a picture of David Ricardo. And why is he so important? My research is in international economics, why countries trade with one another and, and some other things. But what did David Ricardo show? He showed essentially that if you have two countries, 
even if one country is better at doing everything and another country is worse at doing everything, they can still benefit from trade. So you think about the legacy, the impact of that insight is that around the world, almost every country or every country is opening to trade with other countries because of that fundamental principle, namely that you specialize in the production of the good for which you have a comparative advantage. You specialize in that, you export that, you import the other good, and both countries are made better off, even though one country can be better at doing both things. That's such a powerful insight. It's one of the more difficult concepts for MBA students to really grasp, to understand how the home country is better at producing cloth and food. It's better at producing both than the foreign country, but they still benefit from trade. And all of that goes back to to David Ricardo. Very cool. Well, lots of extra reading that we have to add to our homework this term. Uh, <laughs> um, so I guess I just wanted to play off of a, a dynamic that I noticed we had in both of your classes, which is that um, in section one, at least, we would typically have conversations that maybe veered off course, lasted longer than they should have. You know, they're, you're both engaging professors, so we had some interesting times in your classes, and, and we had to shut down those conversations a little bit early. So if you could choose one topic that you feel like you didn't get quite enough time to address last year, what would it be? And, and uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about it. Pesky, would you like yeah, to go first? We, we, we certainly had fun with you. I, I, I enjoyed it too. As, as a professor, what you want to do is whatever engages the students. So uh, whichever one the class is most interested in, that that's the one I, I want to spend more more time in. I think like one benefit that I'm discovering of the current situation is that it's possible to do more with technology than than I used to do. So there's scope through the discussion boards, which I'm I'm leaning on a lot heavier this year, particularly for my AMPM course where where some of the deliveries asynchronous to to keep that you know to keep those tangents alive and and, and to keep running with them and I'm, I'm hoping that 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 works out well for us for me the number one topic i wish we had more time to think about but one of the challenges is that we have to make sure that the topics are you don't veer off into controversial areas which often happens so as a faculty member, sort of as the lead in the classroom, you really have to manage to make sure it doesn't veer off course, which has happened and created issues. And so I gave a class last week to a group of executives and I talked about the rise of China. And it's just in one word, what's happened in China over the last 50 years, in one word, it's, it's remarkable. It's unbelievable, nothing's perfect. And I congratulate the people in the classroom from China and say, you should be really proud of what's happened. Here's the challenges going forward. And, 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 and then people always bring up this issue of political economy and the idea of us, how does politics and economics interact with one another? And I think most people don't appreciate the changing global environment. And Ed Luce in his book, uh, The Retreat of Western Liberalism, said it perfectly. He said that you know, Trump is not the cause of a rise in protectionism. He's a reflection of it. And if you look at this latest United Nations report, the World Investment Report, they talk about the slowdown in globalization over the last decade. So the idea is, as Canada continues to navigate its way through the global economy, 
this is what I wish we had more time to think about. The U.S. is our natural trading partner. 75% of our exports go there. China is now the second largest economy in the world uh, in the U.S. dollar base, but the largest in a purchasing power. How do we manage that? And in a student conference that we had last year that you were both part of, you know, we had um, uh, Dan Treffler talk about the challenges Canada has, and you've got the United States undermining the international rules-based order we've had underlying globalization since World War II. You've got the United States undermining that, but you also have China undermining that. And so now what's emerged is something called the Ottawa Group, led by Canada, but a bunch of middle powers to somehow try to navigate this because these two giants are really undermining the world, the rules-based trade order. And that's a challenge for Canada. We have to manage it, but that veers a lot into politics. And so I really wish we had a lot more time to think about that. If I could just add, add, on, add on a little bit and, um, and, and come back to a question you asked earlier on, on what are the themes that, that we bring in this year. You know, in the past, I haven't spoken much about government in my in my course. I don't know how much I, I if you remember me speaking about it at all in the class, Ben. But I think this year with the stuff that's going on, you know, externalities uh, require government action. And so the fact that you wearing a mask or not wearing a mask or getting the vaccine or not affects everyone else has allowed this huge role for government. These disruption to the supply chains and, and, and the need to protect them give government much more influence in, in I mean, government was always there. Don't, don't get me wrong, like 40% of GDP is government expenditure, be that on health, education, whatever. Government is always there. But I think as a manager looking to the future over the next five years, it's, it's impossible not to think about what government is going to do in terms of regulations, and that's going to affect lobbying, and that's going to make the separation of the political and the economic much more difficult. Yeah, I can imagine that trying to keep, you know, politics out of your classroom can be tough because inextricably politics is going to be linked to whatever the economy is saying and it will, you know, the economy will dictate policy and kind of everything along those lines. So I can appreciate that it would be difficult to keep it out of your classroom and at the same time try to report things to us as students in a much more unbiased way. But yeah, I can appreciate that. It's probably very difficult. And yeah. lobbying firms and... Yeah, and, and, and if I will add to that, I will say that the economic environment of business class was just sort of set up from the beginning to have an inherently political tent to it, just, you know, because it's going to be so tied to politics from, from the first day. And so it, it was always a fun class to go to just because I'm passionate about politics too. And um, I hope I didn't veer too many conversations off course. <laughs> no, you did. I actually have you in my notes. I actually took a picture of you and put you in my notes because you veered me off topic so many times. <laughs> I'm sorry. No but, one th no, but you actually, you're exactly, both you and Aaron are exactly the kinds of people you want in the class because I would argue the worst experience is the faculty member not being challenged by the students. And, and you know, sometimes I'm challenged more than I want to be, but I think that's exciting. And if the, the one file that I've worked on and I've testified in Ottawa on extensively is on, on telecom. And economically, so Dan Truffler and I published a paper last year, which looks at the benefits of liberalizing foreign investment rules on telecom. 
economically, the data is so clear that you and I, Canadians, will all be better off if there was liberalized foreign investment rules. Yet, from a political perspective, we still have protection. So the students always ask me, why? Why, does, why are these incumbents able to prevent the government from doing something that economically would be better off? And that's where the economics of lobbying comes in. And being able to articulate that to students, it's a real challenge to, you need more time to formally think about the economics of lobbying. But the fun part is when I have students working for one of the big three telecom companies challenge me, uh, and that's where a lot of the fun comes in. If I may say one more thing, I had one student, a senior person working at one of these companies who raised his hand and said, I work for so-and-so company. And I said, in which case, you should apologize to the class for what you've done. <laughs> Great. Okay, so switching gears a little bit, I guess my next question will be, which publication are you most proud of in your respective careers? And Husky, we'll start with you. Sure. The answer is always the next one. In, in, in academia, just like in business, you try not to rest on your laurels and you're always uh, thinking about, about the next opportunity. You can't, uh, you can't sit still. So right now, I, I have a paper called uh, Training, Recruitment and Outplacement, which uh, brings um, modern techniques of information design to think about what kind of information firms reveal about their employees and how that affects wages, how that affects training decisions. If you're curious, on my website, I've got a five-minute cartoon introduction to the paper. So I encourage you to, to go and, and check it out. But the answer should always be the next one. And it's funny. I was, I was going to say one that I'm working on, but just to take the contrary view, uh, one that I've already published, there's actually two that I couldn't decide on. But the one is a paper that actually got written up in the Financial Times on an interesting read for the weekend, which was around the importance of the English language. And as you, as you know from the course, we have this thing called the gravity model. But if you look at these big macro models that explain trade flows between or among countries, after controlling for other things, countries that, have, that share a common language, those countries trade more with one another than controlling for other things. And that proxies for lots of things, but it would be something like transactions cost. It's easier to communicate, but it's also highly correlated with culture and common colonial history, all that kind of stuff. What we were able to show was that among the OECD, I should give you a test, Ben, I won't, but how many official languages are there across the 30 or so most developed countries in the world? So official languages, there are 27. But how many official languages are there that are common to two or more countries? And that's seven. There's seven. And Spanish, for the analysis, Spanish is difficult because there's only two countries. There's only one country pair, which is Mexico and Spain, that have Spanish as an official language. But what we were able to show was that if there's two countries that do not have English as a common language, would the linguistic distance how far their language is from English, would that linguistic distance at all predict whether they trade more with one another? So what we did, which was really cool, was we looked at the sample of countries that do not have English as an official language, and then we entered the linguistic distance of their official language to English, and we found that countries that have a 
closer linguistic distance trade a lot more with one another. So that was indirect evidence that English is used as a lingua franca. So it's the language of international business. Last thing I'll say is the two countries that had the furthest linguistic distance from English, and I could I could share with everyone how we measured that, but was Korean and Japanese. Those were the countries that had the furthest linguistic distance. So that was a one. And I think French and Spanish were something like 0.5. Hmm, that's really interesting. I also just have to say, in terms of culture, Korean and Japanese tend to be almost the opposite side of the spectrum in that the cultures are much more community-minded, so the language fits as such. So I find that to be really interesting, and maybe that's something we can talk about at a later time. You know, and I have to say, going back to what Heskey said, and, you know, he said, and I, I love the way, and the listeners can't see this, but the way Heskey's eyes completely opened up when he started talking about his research. And the idea is that it's always the next. And I, I like to say one of the reasons why professors are scrambled, I usually use a different term, but I won't today, is that when you finish a paper, you have more questions than when you started. And Aaron, the question that you just raised is a fantastic PhD question. So if you decide to pursue your PhD, that's exactly the kind of question you could pursue. Well, I probably won't pursue my PhD. So if any listeners out there are interested in this topic, then that is definitely up for grabs. Well, thank you so much for that detailed answer. I wanted to move on a little bit here and change gears to a hypothetical question. If each of you could choose a different career than being a professor, which one would you choose and why? Let's start with uh, Waleed. This is a really hard question because I don't want Heskey to know my answer. Oh. The one thing, and this is something I communicate to students a lot in class and outside of class is, and I really, really believe this, and I once said it in front of the dean and regretted it. If you love your job, you never work a day in your life. I truly believe that. And Heskey knows this, and professors know this generally, is that when you have a day to sit and work on your research. It's like you won the lottery. It's like, that's exactly what we want to do. We want to focus on, on our research. And the reason I love this profession is that I get to do research on topics that I care about. So if I had to choose another career, it would have to be something that I love doing and it would require creativity and choice. I couldn't do the same thing repeatedly. It's not me. And I, I wouldn't want to be told that this is the file you have to work on. I would like to have the, a job that allows me to do research, to really dig deep into interesting issues, but also to have some choice in the kinds of topics I want to work on. And there's not many careers like that. There's one, but I'll leave it for the audience's creativity to think about what that is, and I won't give the answer. So that's my answer. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll have to accept the mystery there. Maybe uh, Heskey can give us a more direct answer. I, I can't top that. You know, as I sort of suggested to you, like my plan originally was to kind of go into these sort of somewhat more standard investment banking or consulting careers. And actually in between my master's and my PhD, I managed to spend a couple of years in a consulting firm. So I love that. Actually, I mean, it, you know, it's directed by others. It's sort of less self-directed. But what was exciting about it was I was doing economics. This is an economics-based consulting firm. We were mostly working on regulation and antitrust cases. 
and working on problems that people cared enough about that they were willing to pay large amounts of money to figure out the answers. That was exciting to me. And, and I think it would still be. And Heskey, so you and I are aligned because my answer was consulting. <laughs> there you go. But, you know, truly, I would just rely on blind luck to guide me to wherever it guides me. I would say those are both good alternative careers. Now, just to kind of touch on the last question we have for both of you, I guess we touched on this earlier already, but if you were to give advice to someone to be successful in your class, so not necessarily someone who's going for an A, but someone who wants to be successful in your class, what would you tell them? Could I go first? So I, I, I think, I mean, in the in the notes you gave us, you also talked about common mistakes. And, and I, I think the kind of big mistake that people get is that they think that some people are destined to get it or, or not get it. And that kind of mindset leads them to, to give up too quickly. I'm sort of very lucky that I get people at the very start of their Rotman career when I get to say, you know, this is a time in your life where you really have an opportunity to experiment, to try things out. And, and part of what you might try out are different learning techniques. There's a lot of pedagogy out there now on the fact that not everybody learns the same way. And experimenting, trying different ways to figure things out, you get a lot of value from, from doing that in this relatively safe space of university rather than trying to figure out how you learn things on the fly in a job, where if you get it wrong, you might lose your job. At university, maybe you get a slightly lower grade in one of your courses, but you know, if you've never tried out the Pomodoro technique, if you don't know who Barbara Oakley is, um, you might, you might want to go and figure that out. There's, there's a lot of interesting work out there on you know, learning how to learn. And I think the, the big advice is experiment. Um, and experimenting, if you're doing it properly, necessitates failure. And you have, you have to be zen with that. You have to understand that failure is part of the process and only through failure can, can you learn. And so I think the big advice is to be okay with not getting an A all the time, but to make sure that you're trying and that you're learning from those experiences. That was an insightful answer, I, I have to say. I completely agree with everything that Husky said, and I'm just going to quote Jay-Z, who actually, <laughs> who actually said, I never learned anything from my successes. And, you know, Husky, what you said is so incredibly important. And I, I give these lectures to people, to teachers in elementary and secondary school about teaching strategies. And one thing that we talk about is, should we let students ever fail? And the idea is, you know, you don't want to hurt their feelings, but if you're not pushing the envelope, you will never fail. So you have to build in a resiliency, uh, a resiliency to that. The one thing I would just like to add, and I think it's so important for the mindset of a Rotman MBA student, is when you think about the Rotman experience, you finish your undergrad, you go work for three, four, five years, you come back, you spend two years if you're in the full-time program. And then you go out and you start your post MBA career and you think about what are the dimensions of your experience at Rotman that helps predict who gets the biggest lift. Now, it's so important to contextualize this, that lift can be in terms of salary, what you came in with, what you leave with, but it could also be in getting the job that you want, which may not be driven by 
money or finances. It may be switching careers. But if we just focus on Lyft for this conversation, but it's a much broader conversation, what are the three dimensions of your experience at Rotman that explains who gets the biggest lift? And the three are how much you learn, which is reflected in grades. Grades matter. Number two is your development of your ability to interact, your interpersonal skills. And I give these stories in my class and you know that. And the third thing is this issue around not just networking with your classmate, but using this two year period to network with people in industries that you care about. So that's why I always tell students in the first week of class, grades, developing your interpersonal skills and networking and your job in the two years at Rotman is to optimize on this portfolio of things. It shouldn't be unidimensional. So what you need to decide what the right mix of those three things are. But we have lots of stories of people that only focus on grades and they neglect the other two and they underperform. I would argue that students need to put more thought into all three and put some weight. What that weight is, I or Heskey can't tell you that. That's something you have to decide. But that's the way to get the, the impact that you want from the MBA, whether it's from salary or changing careers or moving into a sector that you find more appealing. Thank you for that. Um, I, I guess that uh, at this point in the interview, I want to shift gears completely to um, more of an academic conversation. And uh, I think that we'll start with uh, um, Walid again. And um, I wanted to ask, uh, because of your interest in this subject, um, what role does trade diversification play in Canada's economy and how important is it to find trading partners beyond the United States? Yeah, what, what a great question. And this explains why you got it, one of the highest marks in my class. You paid attention. This is a great, this is a great question. Canada has 75% of its exports go to the US. And that's exactly what you would expect because it's not Canada that trades, it's individual companies. Individual companies are pro maximizing their profitability. And as individual companies maximize their profitability, the outcome of that, it manifests itself in trading with the US for a whole host of reasons. But that creates, and going back to the comment that Heskey made earlier on the role of government and externalities. When we have 75% of our exports with one country, the United States, that puts the Canadian economy and Canadians at significant risk. So when I testified before the Senate committee on NAFTA, I asked this question rhetorically, whose fault is it that the prosperity, the livelihood of 10 million Canadians depends on the decision of one man? Had Donald Trump decided to kill the NAFTA, it would have really impacted the Canadian economy negatively. It would have been a disaster. You can't expect individual Canadian companies to change that because they're maximizing profit. So what must happen is the Canadian government must create conditions that results in the profit maximizing decision of individual firms to trade in other countries other than the United States which includes China and others. And the two most important pillars of that, and this is my research, two of the most important pillars of how do you get Canadian companies from an optimization perspective to do trade in non-traditional markets. Number one, the Canadian government must create policies that enables Canadian companies to be more innovative and more productive. That's number one. So that enables them to be able to operate in more difficult markets. 
But number two is Canadian government needs to open more markets to reduce the cost associated with the Canadian company working there. So it's really, it's silly, in my opinion, to open a market if our companies are not prepared to operate there. So these two have to go hand in hand is we need to open new markets for Canadian companies. And at the same time, we need to enable Canadian companies to have the ability to move into those markets and to succeed. So building on that, can you talk a little bit more about um, how Canada can facilitate foreign direct investment from a you know macroeconomic perspective? Yeah. So the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, has these indices which, which rank countries on how restrictive they are to foreign investment. And contrary to what many people believe, Canada is one of the most restrictive countries in the developed world when it comes to foreign investment. And it's driven by three sectors, banking, telecom, and air transportation. And I could speak to all three of them, but what the Canadian government must do in order for Canada to maintain the prosperity that we all have. You know, I don't want to go too much off topic, but the drivers of our prosperity for this country that took us from confederation to today, this backward looking view are not the same pillars that are going to drive our prosperity in the future. We need to be much more innovative, productive, and so on. So the Canadian government needs to change its protectionist mindset. There, on so many of the Canadian government's policies, there's this element of protectionism that results in inefficiencies in the Canadian economy. And I could give an example if you would like, but I don't want to take too much time. By all means. Yeah, so the, the best example, so on the telecoms, I've talked to you about this extensively. Let's think about air transportation. The world has changed. So all of you that have taken my class, you know, we talk about the shift in the global economy and you've got the G7, its importance declining dramatically as a share of the world economy and all of these other markets. So the Brookings Institute did a really important study that showed that Canada is among the least connected globally when it comes to direct flights. So what does that mean? Is that if you get a job, Ben, at the consulting company of your dreams and they want to send you traveling around the world, you want direct flights. The last thing you want is to go through a busy hub like Frankfurt or Vancouver or London and sit there for three, four, five, six, seven hours on each leg. It does. So if there's demand and if a Canadian incumbent will not offer a direct flight and if there's demand, the Canadian government should give those landing rights to a foreign carrier. The idea that Canadian incumbents in the airline industry can block a foreign carrier from providing direct flights from Toronto or Calgary and Edmonton, all of these cities, Toronto's not the only city in Canada, there's lots of hubs that need direct flights. And if there's demand, if the Canadian incumbents will not provide that, then the Canadian government should allow foreign carriers the landing rights. And just think of the impact on our productivity and our competitiveness. You've got all of these Canadian executives that have to sit for 14 hours in airports instead of taking direct flights. And the only reason is to protect the incumbents at the expense of Canadian prosperity. There's a great example of eliminating the protectionist mindset from Canadian government policy. And now you got me really excited, Ben. <laughs> we love to see that. <laughs> okay, great. So this next question is for Husky. 
How do Canadian regulations and enforcement influence the optimal structure of criminal organizations? So uh, the, the, <laughs> the, the, the truth is I have no idea, but I do know why you're asking me this question. So I, I, I have a question from, ooh, must be 10, 15 years ago before I dreamt of, of moving to Canada called How to Organize Crime. So it was it was kind of a fun paper to work on and and to present at the time as well. So you know this was um, we started working on this a few years after 9/11, and by that time I had my green card. So you know even with an Iranian mother and an Iraqi father, I was <laughs> feeling okay about about working on this because we were trying to think about the effectively the organizational chart, the org chart for criminal organizations and why these look very different for, let's say, the Sicilian Mafia, which is much more hierarchical, you know, there's the big boss, the captains and, and, and the people under, uh, versus, let's say, Al-Qaeda, where you have these uh, isolated independent cells. Uh, so we were interested in seeing why these had these different structures and how these different structures arose from the way the police went after these different kinds of crimes and, and who they would pick up and how I think the kind of insight there, so, you know, we'd present this paper at conferences called things like mathematical methods in counterterrorism, and there'd, there'd be a bunch of academics and there'd be one or two people with crew cuts and very polished shoes sitting in the front <laughs> taking notes. Uh, you know, and I, I think the insight was just that, you know, when you change enforcement behavior, when you or allocate more resources to, to detection, you shouldn't expect the organizations to stay as they are. They, they, they might change in terms of their shapes and that might affect how effective your detection policies were. So that, that, that's what came out of that work. And I think that's why you asked me the question. <laughs> and I, I will add a little bit of background to this question. I attended your office hours about a, a year ago and uh, brought this, up, this specific question up and uh, we chatted about it for a couple of minutes. It was a lot of fun. Um, I, I, I remember I enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just wanted to direct a similar question uh, to Walid. Um, will the trend towards digital payments impact the underground economy in Canada? And what would be the economic impacts for working Canadians of reducing the size of the black market? Yeah, what, uh, what a great question. So I'm the academic director of something called the Business of Payments Program at Rotman. And we talk about digitization. And uh, when you think of the underground economy, by definition, it's not measured. So what's the size of it? We don't know, but there's a wonderful World Bank study that has estimates by country. And if you, if you talk to the people at Stats Canada, the estimated size of the underground economy in Canada, this number is about five years old, is about $100 billion. But surprisingly, only about 20% of that is illegal activity. About 80% of that is actually legal activity that's not paid for. And the number one activity we believe, uh, it's unmeasured, but is home, is home improvements. So the idea is that you get a plumber to come to your house. Uh, he or she fixes the plumbing. You know, the sink is plugged. You pay them $100. There's no tax. That's sort of the largest part of the underground economy. You know, drug dealing and other bad things that happen. Maybe I shouldn't have said the word bad in the current environment, but that that's $20 billion. So... So now when you think about the move to digital payments, let's think about the average Canadian. So just imagine if we could eliminate the underground economy. I'll speak to that in a second. But for the average Canadian, 
Um, if the government were able to collect all of the tax revenue that it's otherwise losing because of the unmeasured activity, which is about $100 billion, that's the estimated size of the underground economy in Canada five years ago, About 20, there would be about $20 billion in additional tax revenue. And so that could reduce the tax burden on the average Canadian because now the government is taxing. But the other side of that is that now when you call a plumber to come to your house, you now have to pay tax. So what's the net impact? That's sort of an empirical question. We don't know. But one really interesting study done, and this is an NBER, National Bureau of Economic Research paper, it looked in the United States when they switched from giving paper checks for, uh, for social benefits across counties in the U.S., they switched, and there's a lot of, this matters for research, there's variability in terms of when a county implemented this policy, but when they moved from giving you a physical check so you had to go to the bank and cash it to a digital, meaning that it's a, a direct deposit, crime rates went down dramatically. So what's the impact on the financial? It's not really clear, but certainly when it comes to lots of kinds of crime, it's a, there's evidence in the U.S. that it reduces muggings and thefts and those kinds of things. One other thing I would say to go back to the answer Husky gave around organized crime, you know, much more sophisticated. So one vector of conversation we have in the business of payments program is, will the move to a completely digital world eliminate organized crime? And I think the answer is no. You know, we have these cryptocurrencies coming up as one possible way. But as we know, in the criminal world, you know, people are very, very, well, some of them are very, very smart. They're always figure out a way to hide transactions. The last thing I will say, I must say, because it's important, is it ideal to move to a completely digital world? And I think the answer there is no, for two reasons is number one, you, we have this thing called the precautionary demand for money. People always want to have some money in case uh, the internet goes down or the digital platform goes down or your card doesn't work. So people like to have some cash as precautionary. So that's number one. But number two, there's often transactions you might want to do that you don't want a trail for. And one great example is, you know, I'm on a diet. My wife will get really, really upset if I eat unhealthy. So if I stop to eat something at McDonald's, I don't want her to know. So if I pay for my debit, if I pay with my credit or debit card, she would know. But if I have so and you could think of other examples of transactions you don't want people to know about. So there's always that need for some privacy. And so that's why I don't know if we'd want to go to a completely digital world, uh, but it's a really fascinating area to think about. If I could just add briefly as well, I mean, I think that the, the super interesting answer you gave, it was predicated on uh, the digital payments being secure. And I, I think that, you know, the, the, the you know, organized crime will shift to attacking cybersecurity, to hacking payment systems. And we, we, we've seen some of these cyber breaches. Uh, I think that, that, that that's something people would have to be mindful of as well. You know, Heskey, one thing that is really interesting and is underreported, you know, we hear a lot about ransomware and there was a university in Alberta in the past year that paid. So somebody got into their system, encrypted everything, and they actually paid an undisclosed amount of money too. But um, so ransomware is something, but another really big part of security is individuals being blackmailed. And so the idea is that 
I'm able to hack your computer. I can get access to pictures or information. And there's a lot of this kind of blackmail going on that's unreported for lots of reasons. So criminals are clever and they'll figure out a way to get around it. Yeah, I will say that the company I used to work for uh, before Rotman uh, was a victim of the WannaCry virus, and we did not pay the hackers. And it was, man, such a brutal ordeal trying to get all the information back and uh, just kind of start from ground zero. But yeah, I hope we're able to figure out a solution to that issue. And uh, Heskey, I feel much more comfortable asking you this question now um, because you'll be teaching the course, but... What is game theory and why should students take this class? Well, I, th I think you just answered it because I'm going to be teaching it this year. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, so a, a more serious answer. I mean, game, game theory is uh, it's a branch of mathematics, actually, but it's a, it's a formal approach to modeling and addressing strategic reasoning. So what do I mean by strategic reasoning? When, I, when you play a game, when, you know, the classic game like uh, uh, chess or poker, uh, you know, when you make a move, you don't just make a move and that's it. You make a move anticipating that there's going to be someone else who's reacting to that, who's thinking about why you made that move. And you're going to be thinking about what they're going to be doing. They're going to be thinking about what you're doing. You're thinking about what they're thinking that you're thinking that they're doing and so on and so forth. And so we need a way to cut through this. And the, the technique that economists and, and others have used to cut through this is, is game theory. So game theory as a way of modeling and thinking about strategic reasoning. Now, strategic reasoning arises everywhere. It's not just um, chess and poker. You know, when firms compete, they have to think about each other and how each other's gonna react. Uh, when managers are dealing with their subordinates, their subordinates are going to be reacting to what the managers are doing and they're gonna be second guessing themselves. Uh, even parents with children, uh, and uh, our colleague Joshua Gans has a great book called Parentonomics on, on games that parents play with their children effectively and how that works. So I think it's a topic that, you know, strategic reasoning, it comes up everywhere in terms of governments dealing with each other, in terms of firms dealing with governments. It comes up everywhere and it's well worth understanding. So if it were up to me, it would be a, a core class. Uh, I'll also add that I think it's a very fun class to teach and, and I, I hope to be part of because we get to play a bunch of games in the class and think about how how we reason. So you get to see how other people are reasoning about a situation. Is it what you expected? Why? Why not? And so what insights does the formal theory give? What makes it a better or worse description of, of how people are actually behaving? In what circumstances is it going to have predictive power? And by playing these games, we, we get to learn that. Very cool. Well, if I may add one more question to the end of the list here, a little bit less formal. Where is the best place in Toronto to take a yoga class? <laughs> that, that's easy. My wife's a yoga instructor. <laughs> So drop, drop me an email and right right now it's uh, Oriole Park on the weekends. <laughs> All right, just ha just had to help you with the plug there. So I, I really appreciate it. <laughs> it's a family effort with uh, family. Yeah, she's uh, less in the gym than, than she was three months ago. That's that's certainly the case. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you both so much for uh, taking the time to be a part of this. We really appreciate it, and it was a lot of fun. I think this was maybe our best podcast yet. Your insights and expertise were invaluable and, you know, 
we really do sincerely appreciate you offering your voice for our podcast. So thanks again. Thank you for putting this together and, and, and for these great questions. It's been a lot of fun. And one of the big rewards of teaching is building relationships with students and uh, your enthusiasm is fantastic. Thank you for the opportunity. We really appreciate it. And that's it for the episode. Thank you for listening to the Rotman Podcast. Be sure to follow us at EMA underscore Rotman for updates on the latest in the club and all upcoming podcasts.